0: So let me read uh, to you Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, (coughs) Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of their exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. This is God's Word, and this is a Christmas passage, one which is probably not read very often, and one to which a lot of people are probably thinking, thank goodness Steve didn't ask me to do the Bible reading. (laughs) But there is a really great purpose and importance to this passage of Scripture in the Christmas account. I've called this message The Legitimacy of the King. And I want us to think for a moment about our uh, royal family, which is in good shape in the sense that there are two heirs to the throne— and a number of spares, which isn't a really nice thing to, to say, but that is historically what the other uh, siblings are called. There is a, a clear line of succession to the throne. And it was a year ago, or just over a year ago, that our uh, Queen Elizabeth II died. And as sad as it was, the succession to the throne to, of Charles III was seamless. Uh, the day after the Queen died at St. James's Palace there was a decree that was made that stated very clearly that Charles was the rightful heir to the throne. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that on that day I showed up uh, to St. James's Palace and somehow got past the security got up onto the balcony, tapped the man reading the decree on the shoulder and said, you've got it all wrong. I'm the king. It's it's me, Steve, King Steve. Now there has been a King Stephen, but that's a different different story. So I would be King Stephen II. Now apart from thinking I'm crazy, imagine if they, they took me seriously, what would they say? What they would say is, Prove it. Show us that you are the rightful heir to the throne. And, and believe it or not, I would, I would get out my family tree and I would show them and then they'd send me to jail <laughs> because I am not the rightful heir to the throne, am I? Obviously. Well, I don't know if it's obvious. I, I mean, who knows what the future a king might look like me. I don't know. But I am obviously not the rightful king. Legitimacy, you see, is important. For those who claim to be a king, they must be legitimate. And for Jesus Christ, the one who is the king over God's kingdom, it is no different. He must show that he is the legitimate king. And the purpose of Matthew's gospel really is to show us that Jesus is the promised king who has come to be a blessing to all nations, and to rule over God's kingdom. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus gives everything for us in his life and in his death in our place for our sins. But he asks of us everything. He asks us to take our cross and to follow him. And if we're going to give our lives to this king, to Jesus, We had better be sure that he is the king. We had better be sure, if we're going to give everything to him, that he is legitimate. And so Matthew begins his gospel by showing us the legitimacy of the king. Jesus is the legitimate king. And it's shown through the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now, we don't see this at first, but for Matthew there is a genuine excitement at being able to write the first verse of his gospel. Now, there are lots of exciting things in all of the gospels. And if I was to do a poll today, what is the most exciting part of the gospels? None of you probably would say the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But Matthew is excited because this is dynamite. He is writing, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And for the Jewish people who had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years, this was dynamite. They were now able to read, the Messiah has arrived. And this is how we can know he is the Messiah. And that phrase, Jesus, the Messiah, is repeated in verses 16 and 17 and 18. The Messiah, the Messiah the Messiah. And Messiah is the, the Hebrew word for Christ. It's not just a, a surname for Jesus. It means the anointed one. The one who is chosen to be the king over God's people and to bring all of the blessings of God to his people. It's a wonderful name. It was to be given to the one who would come and rule as the king over God's people and fulfill all the promises given In the Old Testament, a promise of a a king who would rule in a perfect way in a land of their own. And for for the Jewish people under the Roman occupation, this was a very exciting prospect indeed, that the Messiah has come to rule over us. But if someone was claiming to be that Messiah, a once-in-history person, then they have to be legitimate. Legitimate. And for the Jewish people to show that they are legitimate, they would have to show where they came from. Now, a genealogy might for us seem a bit boring uh, and not very important, but for the people of this time, it was very exciting. They, I mean, some of you may find genealogies really exciting, but lots of people in the Jewish community found genealogy really, really exciting. Uh, Here's why. I wonder, when when you think of what it is that shows Jesus is who he is, what do you think of? For many, it may be uh, the miracles he performed, uh, the way that he taught, the way he lived his life, and so on. If those things are true, he must be God. And that's that's right, that's true, and that's good. Uh, For others, it may be the fact that Jesus can forgive sins, But for the Jewish people steeped in the Old Testament, the person claiming to be Messiah had to prove they had the right lineage. In other words, genealogy was what really mattered. And we see this in other places in the Bible, in fact. Uh, In Ezra chapter 2, for example, uh, there were people that were trying to work out who was a legitimate priest. And they wanted to worship God correctly and honourably. And that meant they had to find who was the real priest. And so they pulled out the genealogies. And to prove that it was in the family records, we read in Ezra 2, verse 62, they searched for the family records. But if they couldn't find them, they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. In other words, if they couldn't find that and prove that they were from the line of priests, they were excluded. And so if Jesus couldn't prove that he was from this line of Abraham and David, he simply could not be claiming to be the Messiah. It's that important. And so the first and major lesson really from this genealogy is that Jesus is king with perfect legitimacy. So notice right in the first verse who Jesus descends from. He is, notice what it says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, these two men are vitally important because to them was given the promises that the Messiah would fulfill. So, for Abraham in Genesis, we read of the promise given to him in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where God says, Go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So he was promised a land, many descendants, and that they would be a blessing to all nations." And that promise in Genesis was expanded on and reaffirmed in chapters 15 and 17 of that book. So in order for the Messiah to be legitimate, he would have to be a descendant of Abraham. It was to Abraham and his descendants that the promise given that all nations would be blessed came through. But before being a son of Abraham, Matthew highlights that Jesus is a son of David. To David was also given a great promise. For his descendants. So, in two Samuel seven sixteen, we read, "Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." And then, in Psalm eighty nine verse twenty nine, we read of David's throne: "I will establish his line forever; his throne as long as the heavens endure." So, there's more we could say, but to, but suffice to say that the the Messiah must come from the line of David. So a legitimate king must be from Abraham and David, but Matthew here gives precedence to David. Notice his name comes before Abraham in the genealogy. And David's name also appears in verses 6 and 17, as well as in Matthew's gospel at various points. Why? Why is David before Abraham, even though David was born after Abraham. Because Matthew's big point here is to show us the king has arrived. The king has arrived. David was the the great king in his day over God's people. And Matthew is telling us, Jesus is this king, the promised king. Uh, This is made clear in other ways too. Uh, We're not going to turn there now, but... Luke's gospel also has a genealogy in Luke chapter 3. And in a number of uh, ways that are significant, it is different. The names of Luke's and Matthew's accounts are the same from Abraham to David. But after King David, they change with Matthew saying Solomon and Luke saying Nathan. Why are they, they different? Well, the reason is to do with purpose. Luke's genealogy in fact goes all the way back to Adam and its purpose is to show the bloodline of Jesus all the way back to the first man. The point being that Jesus is a man. So he records in Luke the actual biological fathers of each generation. He uses the phrase in fact the son of. But Matthew has a different kind of genealogy. He shows the legal descent for the purpose of being heir to the throne, which is not always biological. Also, are, um, there is the line of in, in um, Luke's Gospel of Mary and here of Joseph. Just to illustrate this with our own royal family, uh, back in the 1800s when Queen Victoria became the queen, her father was not William Uh, the fourth who was the king before her she was the legal heir but had a different father from the previous king and so to be the rightful queen she had to prove that she was the legal heir it didn't matter that she wasn't the biological daughter of the king they're two different things and that's what's going on with with Matthew and Luke Uh, they answer two different questions Luke says who's the biological father Matthew says who is the heir. And the reason Matthew does this is because he's showing us Jesus is the legitimate king. And Matthew even structures this genealogy in such a way as to show Jesus being king. Uh, Strangely, Matthew skips kings in various places. So for example, when we read at the end of verse 8, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, there are generations missing. Uh, Kings Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Why? What well, would you notice there at the end of the chapter I read in verse 17? It says, thus, thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So Matthew's breaking it down into these groups of, of 14 generations it 's deliberate he wasn 't being absent minded in missing kings out. The number fourteen was to make a point which the readers would understand. What is the point well i don 't know <laughs> that's commentators disagree on what that is. Uh, some say it was for, for memorization purposes, uh, others that the, the number is divisible by seven, a, a perfect number for a perfect king. Others think that because Hebrew letters had corresponding numbers, the numbers added together make David's name. We don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is that the purpose is to highlight the uniqueness of Jesus to be the legitimate Messiah. Jesus is the perfect king with perfect legitimacy. And we see here in this this list of names, just one other little interesting point is you go from Abraham to David, this trajectory upwards to David as king. But after David, it kind of goes back down in the second group of 14, down to, to the exile in Babylon, the low point. But then we start coming up again and we culminate at the climax of Jesus arriving, the Messiah. Jesus is the legitimate king, and it's so important that we grasp this truth. Uh, some of you will um, receive from time to time uh, scam emails. Uh, just as a as a tip, if you ever you're unsure, just like check the email address, and if it looks dodgy, it is okay. But we all get those from time to time, don't we? With the, these emails that try and scam us out of our money and say, and, and with all sorts of uh, of, of things. And some, maybe here, have been duped by illegitimate emails claiming to be from the bank. And you can, you can see that it's important to know that when you get something from your bank, that it's real, that it's legitimate. Because if you don't, you can end up losing thousands of pounds. And sadly, there are many stories of people that have lost life savings through these kinds of scams. They're evil. But how much more important is it then to know that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, that we are not wasting our lives in following him? Have we been duped? Are we being stupid in following Jesus? Absolutely no. No way. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. Promised to be a blessing to all nations the one who we're going to see i think tomorrow morning who saves his people from their sins there is no other and the genealogy helps us to see that but then read on in the gospels read on and see his miracles his teaching his perfect life his death and his resurrection from the dead and you will see jesus christ is the king with perfect legitimacy he is the only one who can save you from your sins there is no other there are others that claim to be legitimate other religions and religious leaders who by the way are all dead jesus is the king who's alive others that say there is no god just live for the here and now that's a scam the the, the me god that thinks well i can rule my own life that's a lie Some think that they are good enough to get to heaven by themselves. It's not true. It's not legitimate. Only Jesus is good enough to get anyone to heaven. And the only legitimate king that takes you there. Anything else, philosophy, false god, secularism, whatever it may be, will not save you from your sins. Jesus is the Messiah. So first of all then, he's the king with perfect legitimacy. But a second lesson I want us to see from this genealogy is that he may have perfect legitimacy, but he does not have perfect ancestors. Now perhaps some of you have family members that you perhaps wish you didn't have. Or ancestors that you would rather not mention. Uh, My uh, mum... Uh, is from uh, Birmingham and recently found out in her family history that uh, her family members were part of the Peaky Blinders gang. But my mum's really proud of it (laughs) for some reason. But Jesus is without the stain of sin, but the same cannot be said of his ancestors. I mean, you see in this list some kings which overall were seen as good. So King David and Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, all of whom were not perfect, but were described as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But at the same time, you've got kings here like Manasseh, who in 2 Kings chapter 21 verse 16 tells us shed so much innocent blood, he filled Jerusalem from end to end. But what's more striking, even than the evil kings, or the good ones, in fact, is the mention of four women, Tamar in verse 3, and Rahab, Ruth in verse 5, and Bathsheba. In one sense, this is striking because women were never included in genealogies because the inheritance went from the firstborn son to the firstborn son from the father. In fact, the the women had nothing much to do with the genealogy. It was the father that was important. In fact, it's only been in recent years that um, women have been allowed in our country to inherit the throne. But in this time, for sure, the women had no significance whatsoever in the inheritance of the king. And so why is Matthew putting these four women in the genealogy of the Messiah? Because it's not to show Jesus' perfect legitimacy. In fact, what is in common with all of them is that they were outcasts. Uh, for the sake of time, you won't go into all the stories, but just as a brief synopsis, uh, with Tamar, she was the daughter-in-law of Judah, and you can read about her in Genesis 38. Judah had three sons. The eldest married Tamar, but died before uh, Tamar conceived. So Tamar was given to the second son, and he didn't conceive with her, and the third son was promised to her, but not given. And so Tamar having had no children, pretended to be a prostitute, and slept with Judah, her father-in-law, and had twin boys, Perez and Zerah. She was an outcast because of her sexual immorality and because she hadn't had children. Uh, Rahab, again, is known as Rahab the prostitute. And you can read about her in Joshua 2. With Ruth, there was nothing that we can read that is sexually improper about her, but she was an outcast because she was a foreigner from Moab, a nation whom God had cursed. And furthermore, the Moabites themselves came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. A Moabite was an outcast. And then there's Bathsheba. She was the wife of Uriah, whom David had an affair with, or he had an affair with Bathsheba, not, not Uriah. Bathsheba was Uriah's wife. And the name of her husband is mentioned because Matthew's making the point that Bathsheba was an adulteress. Now some may argue it wasn't her fault. That's probably true. It was David's fault. But whilst that may be true, she was tarnished. And she was married to Uriah the Hittite, A foreigner, and so she was an outcast. What is the point? The point is that all of these women are outcasts, and all of these women are part of the family of the Messiah. Here's the thing they are his people, too. As much as the descendants of Abraham and David, these women are his family. It's a precursor to the Pharisees getting worked up about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. These were Jesus' people. They were his family. And I think the great thing for us is that we look at these women and we can see, well, that means I can be part of his family too. If you've been labelled or you have a reputation or if you've been shamed and you've been humiliated, if you've been cast out by your family and friends, if you're dysfunctional, you'll fit right in. Welcome to the family. But not only are you welcome into God's family, regardless of your background, you're no longer defined by those past labels. Your identity is now a member of the family of the Messiah. That's good news, isn't it? We're not defined by what we've done or what has happened to us. We are defined by being a member of the family of the Messiah. And the other wonderful thing is, isn't it amazing? You know, Matthew doesn't have to, as he's led by the Holy Spirit of God to write these words, he doesn't have to put any of those women in this genealogy. It makes no difference to the legitimacy. But he chooses to do that. Why? Because Jesus is not ashamed to have these women as part of his family. And neither would he be ashamed to have any of you either. He doesn't want to hide us away. He's pleased to have us. Isn't that good news? And that means for us as Christians, we too should be pleased at the people that are in our family of God here in the church. We should welcome them, not want to hide from them or hide them from us or others, even if they are awkward and dysfunctional. They are part of the family of faith. And if Jesus is proud to have them, then so should we. So although Jesus is is from a dodgy background, the sin of the ancestors was not inherited by Jesus. In fact, Jesus was unique from all of his heirs because he was not a sinner. Look with me at the difference of Jesus in his birth from the others in verse 16. It says there, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Notice what Matthew's doing here. Joseph is not the father, biologically, of Jesus. Matthew makes the point that Mary was the mother, but in doing so, he's showing that Joseph is not the father, but it's Joseph's ancestors that are listed. So if Joseph was not the father... Who is the Father? Well, God is the Father. Matthew's revealing something here that is uh, explicit in the next section of his gospel and made explicit in Luke's gospel. Jesus is king, human and divine. Jesus Christ is a man born of a woman in the flesh. And we see when we read the Bible that Jesus is a real man, 100% man. But he was not conceived in the normal way. In the next passage we see that he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. That means he is God the Son. 100% God. Why is this important? Because only one who is both God and man can save us from our sins and bring man and God together. Humanity and God are not reconciled because God is holy and humans are sinful. And Jesus, being man and God, is the mediator that brings those together. And here's how it works in the genealogy. Notice how Joseph is not the father of Jesus, but Jesus inherits the legal right of kingship from Joseph. How is that the case? Because in marrying Mary, Joseph becomes the earthly, legal father of Jesus. Jesus becomes Joseph's son, By adoption. So Joseph is not Jesus' stepfather. Joseph is legally Jesus' father. He adopts him into his family. Uh, We see the adoption actually taking place in verses 18 to 25. When Joseph uh, noticed that, he is the one in uh, verse uh, 25, he gave him the name Jesus. Do you see that there? He gave him the name Jesus. Joseph gave him the name. And in this culture, the father gives the name to his son because the father has authority. And so in naming Jesus, Joseph is saying, I'm his dad. And so Joseph has adopted Jesus into his family household. And as Jesus was adopted, he is adopted as the oldest son And so Jesus, therefore, is the legal heir to all of Joseph's estate. And Joseph being the the rightful king, that kingship is inherited by, by Jesus. So when God became flesh, he was placed into the family of King David's descendant so that he could be the king. He is the legal heir to the throne of David. Jesus condescended to earth and became part of the one human family that enabled him to be the Messiah. So he could fulfill the promises to Abraham and to David. But in order to fulfill those promises, he had to live perfectly, which he did. And he died in our place on the cross because he had no sin of his own to pay for. He could pay for ours. And he rose again from the dead. All of which means that we can have a relationship with God because Jesus has died for our sins. We can be forgiven. The barrier between us and God is broken. We can approach God as children of God. Only God could live that kind of life and only a human could take the place of sinful humanity and Jesus is both God and man. And when we put our faith in Jesus and receive that forgiveness, what happens to us? We are adopted into Christ's heavenly family and we share in his eternal inheritance. So here's a way of looking at it. Jesus was adopted by an earthly father so that we could be adopted by our heavenly father. He mediates between God and man, bringing us together and that's the good news and so when we give ourselves to king jesus we are adopted into his heavenly family and we inherit all of the blessings of that are given to abraham and to isaac we're given eternal life under an eternal good and gracious king who we will rule with forever and ever he is the legitimate messiah He is God and man who saves us from our sins. Jesus is king. And we need to be reminded of that, not just once a year at Christmas time, but every day we need to remember Jesus is king. That he has a claim to rule over our lives, but that he's a good king. And it is our joy to serve this king. And so this Christmas, let's be amazed again that Jesus is the King. Let us be amazed that God has become flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. And let us commit to giving our whole lives in submission to the rule of King Jesus. It's the greatest life that we can live under the greatest of kings. And so if you're here this morning and you are uh, you're visiting or you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never asked him to forgive your sins, then let me encourage you to do that today. And if you want to speak more about that, then we'd love to talk to you more after the service uh, about Jesus and about all the wondrous blessings that we have in him. Uh, Take the time afterwards to, to, to speak to someone so that you can receive those blessings that come from him. But what we're going to do now as we close is to sing uh, again. We're not going to sing a Christmas carol as such, but we are going to sing of Jesus being king. Uh, We're going to stand and sing God, the uncreated one. So let's let's sing together in worship of King Jesus, our saviour. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.